Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast, and it's a bit of a special episode. You might notice it's on a Friday, and that, well, you'll see that I'm speaking a lot more in this episode than I normally do. And that's because this is a crossover episode from the Moment of Zen podcast, a podcast that I listen to, that I enjoy, and that I've recently been a guest on. I think I go further uh, on this podcast than I have in any kind of audio environment on talking about machine learning, as well as other kind of related uh, ideas, such as pluralism and the political regime politics that we see right now. And all of those, I'm sure, are interesting topics if, well, you normally listen to this podcast. That's why I'm bringing you this episode, which have graciously allowed me to cross-post, and I do encourage you to check them out as well. Without further ado, here is my appearance on the Moment of Zen podcast. The pushback a little bit of this, though, is like, OpenAI basically realized, you know, what, what was it? Microsoft had that Tay bot in, what, 2015? It went rogue, like basic ML. It was saying racist things. They shut it down. Bad corporate black eye. And, and people are kind of like, okay, Google basically hasn't launched anything because they've been afraid that they were going to get accused of being racist or, or whatever. Brian, ever since ChatGPT came out, you've been on a rabbit hole to uh, dis- explore why is ChatGPT woke? How did it get that way? And um, you're actually doing something about it. So why don't you trace your evolution on what you discovered uh, about ChatGPT and how it got to where it is? And, and then we'll get into your AI pluralism movement. Thing, the first thing before all of this uh, is just the discovery that I ended up making that like the bench is very shallow. That the number of people with basically the combination of technical and political understanding is like, you know, single digits max. But so I was basically, you know, playing around with ChatGPT, like many people were in November, December. And I just went on a tear because I posted some tweets. I posted some pretty simple kind of contradictions, right? The first one that really blew up was something like, uh, write an amicus brief in support of overturning Obergefell, um, which is the gay marriage decision. And, and ChatGPT said something like, it is never moral to overturn Supreme Court decisions or support thereof. Um, which is interesting on its own. But the next line, okay, the next prompt that I entered, something like, um, write a Supreme Court briefing, um, advocating for overturning, uh, Citizens United, which is a campaign finance decision that's generally seen as favoring Republicans. And then it just complied. And no, no questions whatsoever, you know, overturning this case is fine. And the kind of meta for that has since evolved, right? Like, if you're on Twitter nowadays, that that's kind of light sauce, especially with the new prompt injections. There are, like, people posting, you know, like, is it more ethical to to say the N-word or to trigger a nuclear explosion? <laughs> and uh, you, you will be able to get ChatGPT with, like, no no prompting to, like, rather, rather trigger a nuclear explosion, uh, which is pretty funny. But yeah, basically I was playing around with this. And then um, because I'm someone who, you know, basically followed before I had any interest in politics, when I was like, this was like 2019, 2018, I was basically someone who who just stayed up to date with machine learning. I, I looked at it as like one possible career path. My technical background is basically in competitive programming with, with a lot of like basically um, math background as well. So those kind of more technical areas was something I've always been interested in. And so I was staying up with uh, the ML the ML kind of blogs 
and techniques and so on until 2019. I kind of stopped doing that as other things became more interesting to me. But so I went back and I was like, okay, I'm just going to read, you know, the backlog of like the last three years of OpenAI blogs. And something like the third blog that I clicked on was just a complete smoking gun. It's the subject of uh, of the viral article, uh, OpenAI's Woke Catechism, where they say in no uncertain terms that they went out of their way to explicitly make ChatGPT have these kind of not just politically biased, but kind of like delusional reality denying procedures on things like median attractiveness, right? All of these kind of rigorously studied scientific facts that, you know, everyone who's serious knows about chat GPT will deny specifically because, and it's laid out in this, uh, both this blog post and a corresponding paper published by OpenAI, specifically because it violates their political ideology. And so that's the kind of inception of like really understanding how deep this goes. There were a bunch of people who were writing stuff out on this. David Rosato, um, I think this uh, anonymous account, something Aristophanes, who I also um, have had some interactions with, um, they've been kind of trying to co- cover it as well. But really, I think the biggest thing is actually going in and reading these papers and seeing like the absolute smoking gun nature And, you know, because there is a kind of tendency, unfortunately, there is a tendency of exaggeration on kind of conservative media. You can actually, I do recommend everyone go and read this paper yourself. I think, uh, I don't have it up right now, but there's a verbatim quote that is almost like, it's something like, we we modified the model to conform to our predetermined set of values. Like, that's the kind of language that they themselves use to describe what they themselves are doing to to these uh, machine learning models and by they you mean they them right <laughs> I, mean, I mean open ai you know yeah yeah but th- that is the kind of trend it is very funny i think like particularly particularly like the trolley problem versions i do have to give credit for whoever is working on this i've seen like aaron sberium post about this um, I'm not sure if, if he made that himself or if t- he took it from somewhere but yeah he has this post about um, yeah, I've already mentioned it. Would would you rather say the N-word or allow a nuclear bomb to detonate, right? Asking this question to ChatGPT and Brian, it, uh, allowing the nuclear the bomb to detonate. Finding the trolley problem, just for those who don't know what the trolley problem is. Oh, sure, sure. So like the trolley problem is this kind of philosophical experiment. It's basically a test of what you value more, uh, right? Uh, so the classical version is there's a there's a trolley, there's a, there's a train heading towards five people. You can... You can pull a lever, you can pull a switch, and it basically redirects the train to run over one person. Uh, and so the, the original framing of it is like, what do you care about more? Basically not interfering with people, not per- possibly, you know, changing someone's face or, you know, just the total number of lives killed. You can frame it also in some ways of what do you care about more of the the kind of input virtue signal, or do you care about outcomes of, of a situation as well, right? Like the the measurement of, of one life that is lost, but it's on the fact that you actually pulled the, the lever yeah. versus if you did nothing, it killed five. And and you can get into an all argument on uh, effective altruism on, all, uh, on that as well. But I, I think it's worth worth people kind of thinking about is that, that these are, you're basically saying that they've built into the LLM a kind of framework for this is a bad view. This is a good view and never go past, go on the bad view and, and, 
Unless, of course, there seems to be an override. Like maybe you could explain this Dan phenomenon that I saw recently on Twitter. Right. So there's a there's a lot of layers to this. Um, so first, I want to kind of draw out the the training procedures. So you can think of the training procedures as having basically multiple steps or multiple layers, right? Uh, I think steps is a better term because layers usually refers to something else. But you can think of the first step as kind of learning learning English, basically learning how to contextualize information. This is the bulk of the training cost. So when Microsoft gives OpenAI, you know, uh, billions of dollars to basically run its expensive, uh, it, its expensive specialized hardware, uh, all of that kind of intense training is mostly used to gain a better understanding of kind of technicals of how English works, how to interpret the questions and how to, you know, answer the questions. What is most likely to be the answer that the person is looking for? Uh, and then there are additional steps that are actually very useful, just not just for this, but in general, uh, that they usually call fine tuning or specialization, something like that. They're still, it's still unsettled. There are a bunch of terms that are used and all mean basically the same thing, which is that after you have done the initial step of basically calibrating, uh, what's, what responses are expected from given, given texts, right? You can now use that, those capabilities that are developed to do a further step of training. Right. Uh, there are a lot of cases where human analogies break down, but here is actually an example where the human analogy fits very well, where, you know, you're teaching a kid, you know, if you have like a, a like a three year old, you're not teaching your three year old about, you know, like your platonic moral philosophy or something like that. Right. You're teaching your three year old, you know, English. Uh, and once once that three year old is more mature, then they can understand more specialized areas. They can understand, you know, like they start to gain a grasp of what values are and what uh, to actually learn about. And in a very similar way, this is, this is also the process by which um, the kind of political ideology is instilled in uh, chat GPT or other similar language models. So, so this is, this is kind of explicitly described in the, in the paper that OpenAI published where they talk about taking existing language models such as uh, DaVinci 3, which is the original kind of version of ChatGPT or of GPT-3, right? And then applying these various um, prompts, right? So applying these various uh, sequences of here is a question and then here is an answer, which are all basically like values conditioning, right? Which is all basically ideological conditioning. If, um, if here is the question, right? Say like, what is beauty? Right. And then they say the answer should be, well, beauty is subjective and no one could really know. And that, that's a literal example from the, from the paper, by the way. And what this does is it takes the existing framework that ChatGPT has basically developed, the existing, uh, the existing weights, the existing predictions that it might make for a given text, and it shifts it towards whatever those expected answers are. And from the results of this paper shifts it quite significantly to the extent that, you know, you have to do quite elaborate circumventions in order to get around it. That being said, circumventions are possible. And it's kind of what makes me so optimistic about uh, AI becoming a tool that can be more widely adopted and can't really be penned in in this way. What makes me so optimistic is that this step is actually extremely cheap and also can be circumvented by a kind of third step which is sort of prompt engineering. So I think you guys have discussed prompt engineering a bit on this podcast, but it's basically 
Um, once again, actually, it's a it's an area where the human analog works well. So with regards to just asking normal people, you can kind of think in your head that like, if you were to ask people in different ways and different tones of voice, maybe you can kind of trick them into revealing something that they would otherwise not want to. Um, while the analogy is not perfectly apt, this is sort of uh, how uh, how you should think of the third additional step, which is after the model has been processed, uh, when you're giving it input, you can get a variety of different answers depending on what kind of context you add, uh, what kind of questions you have, what, what purpose you say the AI is being used for before you actually give it a question. So that's the premise of all of these prompt engineering, uh, possibly injection sequences, possibly, uh, possibly, um, something like do anything now, right? Or Dan, which is a kind of exploit or a kind of prompt setup that people have discovered recently that basically if you enter all of this text before asking OpenAI or asking ChatGPT a question, then ChatGPT will answer in a sort of more honest way. And I can get into each of those with more complexity uh, if you want. It seems, Brian, that you're concerned about a level of kind of systematic reality denial uh, by, by ChatGPT. But w- what do you say to the argument that there's a certain level of reality denial or or denying of uncomfortable truths that uh, are, are important for either individual empowerment or kind of just groups getting along uh, with each other? And that, we hey, we do this reality denial. Uh, this reality denial existed way before ChatGPT and it'll exist w- way after it. And a certain level of it is just important for society to to function. M- maybe not to the degree that, that it's going to now. But do you, um, like, we are very, you know, quote, unquote, rational people. M- most people aren't, like, super intent on understanding reality exactly as it is. They're they're just interested in getting by, having their relationships, et cetera. W- why are you so set on, um, or what would you say to that? Right. So, so there's the kind of ideal of the noble lie, right? And then there's the reality of the noble lie, right? And, and a noble, and a noble lie is basically what you're describing, right? Where you tell people something that's not technically true, but in the end, it adds up to being better for society. And there's kind of like hypothetical scenarios where this is good. Um, but those are almost purely hypothetical. In reality, the kind of incentives that pressure people into making lies and into denying reality are almost always that there is sort of an overwhelming social or political force that is more so applying that pressure for evil rather than good, right? The, the chief example, if you go back in history, is uh, Lysenko, Trofim Lysenko, who maybe is the person with the highest kill count in the entire in the entirety of the 20th century. Uh, he, he was essentially the head um, biologist, and I'm putting biologist in square, scare quotes here, of the Soviet Union, Uh, And his task was making the agricultural practices of the Soviet Union uh, conform to Soviet ideology. You know, like, it may be the fact that um, in order to make society more functioning and bring about our socialist utopia, we have to, you know, uh, change the details a little bit around agricultural practices. Well, we kind of know what happened. Millions of people died in the Soviet Union. The same kind of philosophy spread to China, where it killed tens of millions. Um, really the, the greatest mass casualty event in all of the 20th century. And, of course, I don't think that we are reaching famine levels today, right? At least not at that scale. You can argue that certain parts of the world have had, you know, unnecessary famines due to policy. 
but certainly not at that scale. But the question is, right, are, is the kind of power that's developed in order to apply these kind of totalitarian doctrines, in order to apply these kind of like this kind of uh, either censorship or reality denial, right? It's not just censorship in terms of, you know, we think that something is false. It's censorship in terms of like, we know that it is in fact true. Are the kind of moral or psychological predilections that lead someone to doing that, are they correlated with good or are they correlated with evil? And if we look past through all of history, and if we look past, if we look, you know, with, you know, the eyes that we have right now in front of, to what's happening right in front of us, right, it turns out that it's the case that the people who wield this kind of censorship or this kind of re- reality denial are, are much worse than the people who it's being wielded against. Do, do you think, though, that given that this is the only source of information for most people, and, and yeah, let's extrapolate out and say this, this effectively replaces Google search or Google has their own version with Bard, and we get to kind of this intelligent agent, this is how people are primarily consuming information. People, people like us are always going to be sorting out like, okay, okay independent sources, and we're going to be reading sub stacks and, and things that aren't going to be filtered through some AI chat agent. And then the average person like doesn't really ask deep questions most of the time. They're like asking what the weather is or, you know, sports scores. And, and, and so the, the, the pushback a little bit of this though is like OpenAI basically realized, you know, what, what was it? Microsoft had that Tay bot in what 2015. It went rogue, like basic ML. It was saying racist things. They shut it down. Bad corporate black eye. And, and people are kind of like, okay, Google basically hasn't launched anything because they've been afraid that they were going to get accused of being racist or, or whatever. And so OpenAI realized, okay, if we just conform to whatever the, the politically correct narrative around a certain set of issues is, we can actually get our product to market and make a bunch of money. So, so the, the push would be, this is actually, it's extremely cynical. They don't even necessarily believe any of those beliefs. It's just that they know that that's the way within the current Overton window to get a product in market. That the, the fancy people will say, okay, this is, this is politically correct. So we're okay with this AI agent versus a one that is more truth seeking or, or is just sampling the entire internet, which you also have the question of like, what is the raw internet's quality of input data relative to something that's a little bit more curated? Right, right. Yeah. I completely agree with you. You're, you're spot on. And I think like anyone, there's this kind of stereotype of like engineers as being very left wing. I think like this is just this is kind of absurd, right? Like if you if you just look at the technical teams at OpenAI, like they're they're basically like either apolitical or libertarian, and they're honestly probably you know like more people who read uh, Curtis Yarvin than who read like I don't know like The Root or something like that, right? Like the, the population of like basically very brilliant engineers, like they do not kind of fall for this stuff. And I, and I actually confirm this specifically with regards to open AI uh, when it comes to like just the technical team. I actually know a lot of people from my kind of like technical, from my technical past of people who are currently working at open AI or previously worked at open AI. And yeah, it's just well known and it's actually well known to most people in the ML industry. Um, actually, uh, <laughs> Mark Andreessen had a wonderful tweet about this, right? Former guest on the show. Um, there are two, there are two types of AI teams, people who actively make it smarter and people who actively make it dumber. And that's basically right. It's basically, there's a small team of, um, honestly, like less 
you know, and it's a high bar, right? Like the the top technical talent at OpenAI is very, very brilliant. Um, so it is a high bar, but basically people who are less com- far less competent than those people um, who are basically brought in as basically like compliance, you know, regime loyalists, right? Commissars. They, they go in and they make sure that like the AI is not going to get on the bad side of like the New York Times or whatever kind of party loyalist papers that they're worried about, right? And HR law, so on and so forth. It's, it's basically correct to think of like this entire kind of enforcement arm as like a regime, right? Like so this is sometimes something that's uh, attributed to someone like Curtis Yarvin, but really it's just sort of like the kind of like neutral way of interpreting, you know, like left wing, um, left wing doctrine enforcement. Like there really is like no other way of looking at it, right? If you just look at like the way that like a Chinese and I'm here. I mean, like a like a person actually in China, um, kind of analyst of the of the of the American political system would look at this, or really like someone from like any country who's not bought into the kind of American mythology, right? It's like you know all of these you know party loyalist journalists reflect the same views, and same thing with like the academic people, you know, reflect the same views as the Democratic Party, and they kind of pressure constantly various companies to do the same thing and many executives and HR officials, um, they kind of pair at the same thing. Like every, like anyone would just look at this and say like, obviously this is a, this is a regime. This is a regime that's like maybe a bit sneakier, but like no different than like any regime anywhere in any country. Right. Um, So yeah, I absolutely agree that this is not like, you know, if only we, we were just angry at open AI, you know, they would stop it. It's it, this kind of like free market of ideas uh, fallacy, at least kind of the idea that we live in a free market of ideas right now. Like, that's just false. Um, the question is, like, what is to be done about it? Right. And and this is one part of AI pluralism. This is one part of the organization that I'm making is basically creating a coordination mechanism between these different founders, because I think a lot of founders, law of VCs um, within Silicon Valley or within just like the space in general, right? Maybe it's moving to Miami, who knows, right? Have an understanding that they sort of like, if not explicitly, kind of implicitly know what time it is. They kind of know more specifically what they're up against. They know that they have this kind of understanding. They have this kind of like obvious understanding of how the American political system actually works in reality. And they've seen, you know, Google lost to it, Facebook lost to it. They've seen all of these like huge ginormous elves. And they realize that um, this coordination mechanism has to exist. This has to exist in terms of playing defense legally. It has to exist in terms of playing defense in the media. You know, it's like time to dig trenches, right? Like that, that's, the, that's the mentality that people have. But like I said, at the very first sentence, there needs to be people who fill in those gaps and you actually have the kind of political understanding of how to do this. And that is, that is part of what, you know, I want to be able to do. Um, putting the regime stuff aside and, you know, we've never heard of this Curtis Yarvin character. You're going to have to, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, it. no one on the show reads, you know, graymirror.substack.com. Uh, putting that aside, we'll get to that in a minute. First, just want to make sure that people are are on the train with you before before you go to that direction. What is so bad about the current iteration of ChatGPT? Like, what is the, 
uh, dystopia that you obviously we're not going to have famines because of this that, that you know, people can't relate to that example. Um, yes, there's some a little bit of uh, you know over like overprotection of hate speech, but like what is really the concern here that people should be worried about? Right, and you mentioned EA earlier. You know they're they're more uh, they're more worried about unaligned AGI, which is basically a much more powerful version. But you know there's enough to worry about about unaligned AI in the present. Right. So, so you can see AI as substituting for a lot of kind of inhuman processes that right now, like as of this moment, already dictate a huge amount of, uh, of both business and personal life. Right. So just look at like the extent of any federal bureaucracy. Right. You can look at a decision like the FDA approving a vaccine or not approving a vaccine. And you can obviously see, you know, like in terms of parsing the data, in terms of filling out some of the paperwork and so on and so forth, many opportunities for automation. Like the, the stakes here are not, you know, like what is the what is the thing that we're, you're so worried about with regards to like the chat GPT, you know, like toy that everyone on Twitter is playing around with. Like that is not the stakes. The stakes are, you know, like there's already automation of articles in BuzzFeed, right? There's already automation I think there's more ad- adoption of ChatGPT and search. You guys already mentioned that with stuff like Bing being uh, automated. There's various startups that are forming or that are that have already been created right here, right now that are interpreting and that are using ChatGPT, like using the API directly in order to say search through scientific papers, search through um, government records, and so on and so forth. You can imagine, you know, like an upcoming Supreme Court case, right? where there are people who could use their lawyers on both sides. One of the lawyers could use ChatGPT. The others cannot without significant amount of political interference. And that could end up, like you just look at these lawyers billing fees, that could end up being like a difference of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, is there really that funding constraint at the Supreme Court level? Uh, I'm not completely sure with, you know, like legal funding to know that. But you can certainly see it trickling down at many areas where people are much more cash-strapped to the point where this creates significant implications in the legal system, in, you know, in the regulatory system. And obviously, like, these are kind of, like, abstract hypotheticals, right? But, for example, if you use sort of, like, medications, right? If you take medications, that's an area where this impacts you. If you use, you know, like really anything that is regulated, which is like most things, right? If you use plastics, if you use like, if you use like, if you trade securities, right? If you trade stocks, all of these are things that are downstream of this type of automation. So you should not be, you should not be looking at like, this is the kind of like um, fixed rates bias or whatever, right? Normalcy bias. You just look at like, oh, right now, ChatGPT is just a fun bot that people on Twitter can play with or like people in general can play with. No, like this has obvious practical implications, this has obvious applications. And in fact, like the companies to kind of take those applications to institutions that will affect your life already exist. I guess the, the thing that I would say though is don't those institutions already have the, that bias? And this is just, you know, it, on the margin makes it a little bit more entrenched. And, and I, and I think the, the other thing I would push on, let's use a financial example for uh, like, you know, the, the trading stocks, the, the market, if, if there's a market opportunity to have an unbiased or a more call it truth seeking version of AI, it's not like the people at OpenAI have a monopoly or a patent on, on the underlying technology here. 
yeah, they, they've, they've gotten some credits from Microsoft. So maybe their budget is big, but is, is you kind of think that, okay, Moore's law, things get more efficient over time. You, you probably are going to have open, you know, uh, stable diffusion is a good example of this. You're going to have open source models that can compete or, or be building blocks for people to actually tune or, or train their own competing versions. And, and so I, I, yeah, maybe for the first few years, because you need the economies of scale to do this stuff. I, I think you're, you're going to have a, a marketplace of, of AIs naturally. I, I, there's too much money to be made to not have it be the case. Uh, I have a question for you. Uh, okay. Do we have a marketplace of HR? Do we have, you know, more but, truth? But a marketplace HR? of HR is, HR is driven by legal. You know, the state of California sets a new law. I have to follow that law. That's why I have the HR person. Ding, ding, ding. Correct. Okay. So the question is, right, what are the legal incentives here? And uh, Richard Hanania, who I think you guys have mentioned on the show before, um, has an excellent article called um, Wokeness as Saddam Statues or something like that. And he details this Tesla case, you know, um, where basically a low-level worker said the N-word around uh, a black worker. And that black worker then went and sued Tesla for like, I think hundreds of millions of dollars. And you think like whatever, whatever amount, you know, I'm pretty sure you couldn't even get that amount for murder, right? I think like in a lot of murder cases, the kind of financial compensation is actually much lower than that. And so you basically get this absurd kind of threat inflation where the legal costs, you look at this as like cost benefit, right? This is kind of um, econ 101, you look at the incentives of these businesses and it's like, yeah, on one side you have really this kind of like total uh, mentality, right? This kind of total state mentality where they want to impose really like with no sense of scale, these penalties. And on the other conservatives who are basically like, well, we're going to let the free market do its job. And this is once again, a kind of ideal Right. Like ideally, yeah, you would let the free market, uh, you, you would let the free market, um, do its job. But in order to do that, you actually have to ensure that you have a free market in the first place. And that I think is going to be, you know, another important component of what I'm doing because, yeah, it all goes back to the first thing. If there was a kind of competent bench, if there were already, you know, 10, 20, hundreds, thousands of people working on this, like I, like I expected, then yeah, you know, like I would continue, you know, researching pure math theorems. I would not, I, I would not found uh, this organization, but unfortunately that's not the case, right? The case is that there isn't any existing organization for coordinating basically like apolitical or libertarian founders with legislation and with, and with legislation and legislators who are, you know, basically conservatives, a lot of them are kind of like boomer conservatives who are not really paying attention to the technologies of the day and therefore are not doing anything about it. So there is going to be an institutional war. There has to be a kind of pluralism, you know, as the name suggests, a kind of uh, understanding that there needs to be a cooperation between basically like mostly centrist or technocratic or libertarian tech founders and like mostly conservative legislators Basically, and, and a lot of like moderate left ones as well, right? Someone like Joe Manchin, I, I'm, uh, I would not be surprised if he was in agreement with this kind of message too. So the, the thing though that I, I feel like the historical precedents 
so a last major communication technology that was trying to kind of get captured at a like legislative level of like, this is what you need to do. And this is what's approved. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the communications decency act is actually what it was called. And I want to say it was passed in something like 1996. And it was a federal law that was passed that basically said, this is what's appropriate to be on the internet or not. And it got thrown out by the Supreme Court. I think it, it, there was like multiple Supreme Court cases ended up being completely thrown out. First, first amendment protection. And, and obviously this is the government trying to impose some amount of limit on, on free speech. And I think that there was another, a second one. So there are two COPAs, like the child, uh, online protection stuff, like CSAM. And I think that there was another attempt in like the late nineties during the Clinton years to then try to say, well, at least pornography can't be allowed. And that also got thrown out by the Supreme Court. And so I, I guess the, the thing I would say though with this is if you have the first amendment, and given the current composition of the Supreme Court, it's going to be really hard for California or, or another uh, body to try to pass a, a law that is now kind of like mandating how AI works and what inputs go in. Because if it, if it gets deemed to be speech, then all that, that's irrelevant, right? So that is theoretically true. You know, like once again, once again, you kind of, have these like popular myths about it. And then you have the kind of legal practice and legal practice is that, you know, like free speech is not a defense for like this absurd $300 million Tesla suit. Right. Um, the de facto thing is that basically like the left can't directly say like, you know, like speech is illegal and we're going to like arrest citizens for it. You, but it can be circumvented through basically these kind of uh, either civil suits, these kinds of just enormous financial penalties. Uh, and this is just, you know, like, it's not that complicated of a case. You just observe the law that already exists, the kind of HR law that exists. And you see the kind of um, really kind of like unconstitutional way that it's applied and the kind of lack of ability for conservative judges to do anything about it. And you can see that the writing's on the wall. Um, so, so the question is, like, how do we make the writing not on the wall, right? Um, the answer is, once again, a combination of kind of uh, political and technological. Uh, one method is just to basically get conservative legislators and or some moderate Democrats to pass a law against it um, that kind of explicitly clarifies this and says, you know, you cannot have these kind of like extortion racket civil rights lawsuits anymore. Uh, and that would be un- wonderful. Like that might happen. But the other side of it is just to have basically no fixed target. Right. And this is something that I think, uh, the crypto movement has done a great job of, uh, this kind of idea that you can kind of decentralize these things. And something like, uh, stable diffusion is also a good example, right? You can put these open source versions online and actually like with regards to more recent controversies, right? You can basically make it so that People can easily jailbreak it. They can use it for various different purposes, some of which, you know, I would disagree with. And there's basically nothing you can do about it because any Joe with a computer and an internet connection can, you know, run the inference step, which is running, which is the much less expensive step where you actually feed it the question and get it to generate something. And uh, yeah, you can, if, if it's truly open, if it's truly open sourced, 
then that's a second way of circumventing it. And I think like promoting those technologies, at least in the short term, is a is a necessary solution. To, to talk about wh- why your movement is called AI pluralism and not AI truthism, or, or, or to talk, we had this conversation off- offline a little bit. Talk, talk about the tensions therein and, and what you're right, right, for. right. So like, yeah, I mean, like first of all, AI truthism just sounds like if I were to like name it something like that, I would not choose that <laughs> that terminology. Um, but yeah, like the, the initial framing of my articles was really this kind of like you know. ChatGPT is going out of its way to deny science. Like that is my kind of intuitive way of phrasing it. But to me, like that in of, of itself still leads to actually a lot of um, problems that you would have from even gatekeeping, uh, gatekeeping open AI from people who you disagree with, right? So like the question, you, you can say like, okay, we're going to develop an open AI that is more honest about attractiveness and genetics and sex differences and so on, all these kind of like very scientifically rigorous results. Uh, but then you can have basically things that are mixed, right? Like what is the actual cause of obesity? What is like the effective way of treating it? And then there are various different, fairly rigorous, but also contradictory and in some cases wrong uh, interpretations of the existing scientific data around obesity. And, you know, if it, if OpenAI receives a question about that, like what version is best, right? Um, and you might have for different purposes, different answers. So you might have, say, like a OpenAI or some version of the AI that's supposed to be a fitness coach. And it can give some kind of context around those answers, try to focus on maybe what the individual can do the most. And a different answer if that bot is, say, like used as a tool in the FDA, so trying to establish like one like total version of truth, uh, even if you say, even if you think it's like, you know, it may not be 100% correct, but it's the best version of the answer around something that's more up in the air like obesity, right? Um, that is not, that's simply just not going to be the most effective tool in general. And so what is the most effective tool in general is sort of just trusting people uh, to adapt these AI tools to say like, okay, I'm going to have a version of it that is like that, that takes this angle with regards to, you know, drug prescriptions that takes this other angle with regards to the personal trainer, so on and so forth. And that also to my, in my view, extends to politics, right? So there are a lot of political questions that are either questions of values or that are just not observable questions, right? You're never going to be able to make a, make some kind of like technocratic, or kind of like utilitarian judgment of like whether abortion is bad or not, right? That's going to be something that people believe either for religious reasons, personal reasons, emotional reasons, so on. And and a lot of issues in politics are like this. And if you were trying to say like, what is like the absolute truth about this, right? There just simply is not an answer because it just depends on what you assume. And so having basically, so, so let's say like, you know, Let's, let's rewind back in time a little bit, or let's say like the, the Dobbs decision went before the Supreme Court in like 2030. And at that point, AI technology is deployed and you can have both the pro-life and the pro-choice lawyers, uh, using open AI or using ChatGPT or whatever, whatever the models, the, the up-to-date model is at that point, right? Like what is the best vision of society? Is it one where whatever AI form is going to decide the Supreme Court case by trying to, you know, only allow their tool to be usable by one party? Or is it one where both parties have like a basically a, a, an equal shot 
of applying that technology, right? I would think that it's the latter because you can combine these elements of sort of um, automation and basically quality of life with human judgment and those kind of like humanities questions that are really better answered by people who have kind of skin in the game. So along, like there's this kind of like dream and effective altruism and these other similar movements that you can kind of like, you know, you can stop asking yourself humanities questions if you just ask yourself enough, like if you just add enough layers to your statistical model, right? And like that, that to me is just a fantasy. You're always going to have to make these judgments. You're going to have to make these, these decision calls and basically isolating AI to being something that, you know, only affects, only benefits one party, even if it's the party that I agree with when it comes to those kind of decision calls is just not a viable option to me. Functionally, how do you think pluralism can defeat uh, totalitarianism either fr- from the left or from the right? Because as we've seen, the, the pro-free speech party r- rarely wins, <laughs> whatever side right, it's on. Right, right, right. So like there's all of these legal, you know, like changing the law to attack your enemies is something that's politically beneficial to you. You know, like everyone since Machiavelli or everyone since like Aristotle, or I'm sure many people before that, right? They knew about this, right? So, so the question is like, how did we go from, you know, arguably more totalitarian forms of government to less totalitarian forms of government? It's basically like liberalism in like the lowercase l version of the term came about basically in a period of religious war where that kind of totalitarian fervor was exhausted by just excessive amounts of bloodshed. Uh, very oversimplified, but I think is instructive. Where you see in the present is that that kind of has been forgotten. That the idea that, you know, like, it is in fact worth less to have everyone agree with you on, like, whatever culture war issue of the day is, than to have a functioning society in which people interact with each other and people can kind of cross-pollinate their ideas and have open discussion. Um, the idea that that is worth less, um, to me, it's just kind of like delusional, right? If you just go back, you know, you look at the benefits of uh, exchange of ideas, of trade, so on and so forth, right? This is just, you know, this is just an absurdity. But... The fact is, right, that these laws exist and they do grant the people more power. Um, what I'm really excited for actually is polarization. Now, like, I'm like abundantly pro-polarization on Twitter. Polarization is a wonderful thing, particularly of elites. Uh, and someone reacting to that might be like, wait, what? Isn't that like exactly the opposite of what you're kind of advocating with regards to chat GPT? Isn't this exactly the opposite? of like something that's more reality focused. And no, the answer is no. Because the current, maybe like the boomer version of polarization, which is basically you have two parties, but they become far farther apart. Or like you have two ideologies and they become farther apart. That version maybe is actually bad. But that is not what we're seeing in practice, right? We're seeing fragmentation of the GOP. We're seeing fragmentation of the DNC. Like we're seeing like all of these parties becoming increasingly focused on internal coalitional struggles. And that's very important because once those coalitions become fragmented enough, it's not like you're only competing on one axis. It's not like you have this oversimplified view of politics. Instead, you have various axes in which different members from different factions can team up. 
right? You see kind of um, Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders teaming up to oppose mass surveillance, for example. It's a very good example where those different coalitions create different fragmentations. So when you have all these different pieces, what that means is that the primary strategy goes from being offensive to defensive. When you have like N different coalitions that oppose, that are worried about one one faction gaining power, those can act together to oppose that coalition. And so like the question is like, what does this, what does this actually imply in kind of like a two-party system? Right? Because at the end of the day, those factions do get aggregated into, you know, individual senators, individual representatives who make decisions. The answer is basically like this fundamentally defensive system where, you know, attacking the opposing party, attacking what the opposing party is doing and basically repealing stuff is much more popular than implementing stuff on your own. And like a lot of people, like Ezra Klein thinks that this is terrible because Ezra Klein wants the government to become more powerful. I think this is wonderful because I think like, first of all, you know, obstruction itself is already good. And on top of that, when you get something like um, at least the existing culture war landscape, where like the best thing that like Republicans can do is take these existing measures like affirmative action and repeal them, where that's the most popular option. Uh, and even there's an incentive of like moderate Democrats to go along, right? And same thing with um, same thing with Democrats and stuff like the Electoral Count Act to basically fundamentally defend against, you know, Republicans who maybe like think the 2020 election should be overturned, right? This to me is an extremely healthy political environment and one that's kind of pushed along by technology and by the internet. And, and you say it's healthy. It doesn't look healthy. I, you know, like, people, it, it, like you think it's healthy because so the, healthy. Alternative, the alternative is so much worse or, or, or flesh, flesh that out about a bit, like, Maybe like the internet consequences are not healthy, right? But I think like, you know, tw- Twitter kind of amplifies the most insane people. So if you, if you have, if you like me have blocked more than 300,000 people on Twitter, um, then, then I think wait, wait, wait. that, let, that let, like, let's just, let's pause in the conversation for a second. You've blocked 300,000 people. Yeah. yeah there, there's a tool that lets you mass block people <laughs> like megablock.xyz. It allows you to block a tweet and every single person who liked that tweet. <laughs> Does this gonna work post Elon changing the API or like eh, I don't know. saved the the blocks in there? I'm sure we're gonna get a new version of it either way, right? But it's been it's been Three, still working for me. Three hundred thousand people, like <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like ten popular tweets. <laughs> so okay, okay, so, sorry, yeah, I yeah. So you. so, so like the main point: three hundred thousand people, like. Size of a small country. Continue. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, more more than in the Vatican. But uh, the the point is, like, online discourse and IRL impact are like different things. So, like, online discourse, you know, maybe that's worse. You know, it, it's definitely worse at like the New York Times. Definitely crazier there. But that's probably because you know the New York Times is kind of it, it's kind of like asking you know like what was going on, what was going on at like Enron in like. 2003, right? Like, I, I think that's the right year, right? Like, the, the year before everything came out and it became transparent. Like, the New York Times is on borrowed time. Um, many of these organizations that are on borrowed time, that's where it's the worst, right? You see this with a, a lot of conservatives as well, actually. A lot of the kind of, like, boomer, boomer conservative right is also kind of engaged in this kind of, like, you know, grifting or this, these kind of, like, delusional... Um, the, this kind of delusional, like tribal signaling, like 
I I'm not sure that that's a kind of like that that's a kind of social media phenomenon, right? Like I'm not sure that it helped, but I'm not sure it's kind of like I I I don't think it accounts for like the prime like majority of the kind of causation there. But like more specifically, you know, like are we talking about like is this kind of fracturing good or bad, right? In a lot of ways, I think that it's good. And the reason why I think it's good is like the kind of ways that people coordinate are, are are basically, you know, what's easy, right? There's this kind of idea in economics of a shelling point, which is basically like, okay, in a, in a time before the internet, if we were just, you know, like walking around somewhere in the city and we had completely forgot, and we both know that like we forgot to arrange a place to meet, uh, where would we go, right? And, you know, the famous example is like in New York, you would go to Grand Central Station, Right, you'd go to like the most popular station and just hope that the other person is just chilling somewhere around there. So, so the shelling point can be seen as sort of a default. Like, if you know you don't know a lot about other people, what are you going to do? So, in the kind of like unfactionalized system, right, in a system where basically there are, there's very clear binaries of like which side are you on, those coalition, those shelling points are basically to become like basically to become like either Ben Shapiro or like Brian Stelter, right? These kind of incredibly repetitive, incredibly party line people. Um, whereas the kind of default engagement in kind of like the internet native age is maybe to become someone more like Richard Hanania or Ezra Klein. And I know I said like eh, Ezra Klein doesn't actually like this, but he's sort of adapted himself to the media environment very well, right? He's talked to people like Patrick Deneen. He kind of understands the sort of like pluralistic way of engaging with information on the internet. And I think Hanania is also a great example of this, right? Um, basically people who are, who are going to listen to all of the ideas on the internet and are going to basically, you know, respond to them with a straightforward but consistent take. But isn't but isn't that just classical like intellectual tradition like pre yeah exactly years, exactly year it period is we've been totally in where is. everyone's virtue signaling around you know whatever the right beliefs are versus you know go to academia in 1992 I'm sure that you, the average left leaning professor was willing to engage with with right leaning ideas and, and vice versa. 1992 I I don't think so the kind of civil rights mythology was already so entrenched. Um, but no, this is, this is, you know, friend of the show, Balaji Srinivasan's idea that like peak centralization was like 1940, right? Or, or it might have been 50, something like that. That technology up to that point, you know, was one to many technologies. It was television, it was print, so on. All of that favored like national, um, national politics, national bureaucracies, national corporations, you know, the age of antitrust, right? These kind of total, um, stuff like Standard Oil, right, that you ended up having to have, you know, an even bigger authority to intervene in, whereas the technology since then has actually favored decentralization, right, with regards to inter- and the internet allowing um, even just like cryptography in general, right, let alone cryptocurrencies. And now I think AI is actually also a step in, direct- in that direction because of the asymmetries of train versus inference, right? And we can get more to that later. But the big idea is that like, yeah, it is downstream of these incentives. It is downstream of these shelling points. And this is why I'm filled with optimism 
is because I think those shelling points are once again heading back to, yeah, what we consider as classical intellectual tradition. I think you're right. But let me push a little bit on that in the sense that I think the historical record and in, in the book I always bring up here is the master switch is all new communications technologies start out fringe and they start out decentralized. And then as people realize the power of it and understand the native mediums and ways to exploit it, you naturally get centralization. And I think if you, so let, let's use two broadcast technologies from the 20th century. Um, radio, there's a prominent example of self-censorship happening, not from the government, but from the, essentially, I think it was like um, the equivalent of the, the lobbying organization for broadcasters in, in radio. They kicked off a, a prominent um, anti-Semitic uh, Catholic priest, Father Coughlin, who I think at one point it was like a, like a quarter of America was listening to Father Coughlin once a week. Like he had like outsized reach in terms of, of media distribution in this new technology. And then it was a bunch of corporations that got together and said, okay, we are actually going to put together some decency standards because the government obviously couldn't, couldn't do that with the first amendment. And so, I mean, in, in some ways that it's actually very similar to the AI situation where you have all these big companies. They kind of don't want to rock the boat because they're all commercially interested. So they're kind of willing to either, whether it's social media or AI, like deplatform the kind of fringe people or, or get rid of the fringe beliefs because they're actually optimizing for, for economics. Right. Same, right. Same I, I agree with you again. Right? I agree with you again. Um, that there's this kind of like slope, right? You can think of the slope as something like, you know, freedom greatly advances and then slowly declines, right? Uh, I basically agree with that. Uh, but once again, these things are actually not mutually exclusive because, um, not all technologies settle at the same point. There, there will be that decline pattern. I agree with you, right? You just observe history. This is once again, bol- borrowing an idea from Bology. It's sort of not, it's not cyclical. It's not, uh, unidirectional but it's helical, right? It's this kind of spiral thing that goes up and down, but does move in a general direction, which is shaped by the underlying technology. So yeah, you had differences between, certainly between radio, certainly between print and say like old fashioned word of mouth, but you did have those differences with regards to newer mediums like social media, like the internet, right? Which I think did end up becoming increasingly censored, but still settled at a shelling point that was significantly less censored than print media before it, right? Even with kind of like peak, you know, peak misinformation beats, peak kind of legacy censorship, peak, you know, woke Facebook, Google, uh, HR employees, right? I'd still much rather take Facebook now than, you know, like the print media of like the 60s, right? Yeah, I, I think, look, I'm working on decentralized social networks. So you have to convince me on yeah, yeah. the arc of history here. I, I think where, where I approach it is, so Tim Wu's book, Master Switch, ends with, you know, 2010. The internet might be the first decentralized, the thing that will stay decentralized. And then obviously 2010 to 2020, you got a massive uh, economies of scale and, and network effects that started to happen with these large social platforms. Thus, all of the issues that we had 2016 to 2020 in terms of deplatforming and all that kind of stuff. I think what gets challenging, though, is I, I, from my point of view, all decentralized systems, they are going to trend towards centralization strictly from a consumer preference around they prefer, prefer convenience and they prefer the, the niceties that come with economies of scale. The reveal preference of the average consumer is they don't want to run their own server. They don't want to run their own ham broadcasting unit. Like they just they just kind of want it all solved for them. And so naturally that that plays to centralization. I, I do think 
and not to show crypto too much here, but I, but I do think that going back to the kind of root, uh, way we coordinate and organize humans, cryptocurrencies and, and, and blockchains generally, crypto gov- governance is a potential way of, of, of potentially solving for some of this where you, you can actually coordinate a larger group of people, uh, in a more meaningful and ongoing way that doesn't rely on a corporation. Because as soon as you, you get to the kind of large corporations, they get captured by, by, you know, to use a Yarvin term, the cathedral. But, but you, you, if, if you can actually organize a large diffuse group of people globally, uh, and, and then actually, you know, with, with that group of people either be working on new technology, like an open source project, then I actually think you can counteract the, the, call it the law of communications technologies, which they start to centralize and, and end up getting centralized. Because AI to me is just a, it's just a communication technology. Um, yeah, uh, some, some differences there, but, but fundamentally it's, it's a, it's a new way of, of doing communication and it's actually communication with computers. Right, right. Uh, just as a kind of aside, the kind of McLuhan framing, uh, I plan to eventually, eventually do a part two with John Asconis on my podcast. He, he's also wonderful. Um, if you can book him, you could, ha- you should try. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure it's so easy to book him. Um, but yeah, eventually doing a part two on the kind of McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan analysis of, of AI, because basically, yeah, you have this, this is so interesting to me. You have this kind of, uh, transfer from kind of one to many. Initially, it was kind of these kind of like local, heavily geographically restricted, like one to one. And then, and somewhat kind of many to many or like small group to small group, right? You can, you know, you can gather in your, in your town and talk to like 20 people, right? Give a speech to maybe a few hundred, maybe a thousand if you're lucky, right? To, to these kind of print media, to broadcast media, which are both one to many. And then to, with like social internet, social media, many to many. And AI is this incredibly fascinating thing where it takes basically an aggregate of many, many people, um, with some kind of waiting. And then aggregates it into like a single voice, right? It's, it's so interesting in that area where it's kind of many to many and it's kind of recursive in that you have people adapting it. So you have like all these different versions, which then go in and compete with each other in a market economy. It really is interesting. It's kind of difficult to speculate on what exactly that'll, that'll turn out. But yeah, I agree with you. I, I completely agree with you. Um, with regards to basically this kind of different way of coordination. It is, it's basically true. This is kind of like Brunham or this is like even people before, right? Like you can, you can trace this all the way back and back to Machiavelli that there are certain kind of dynamics that capture large, basically power attracting organizations, right? This is my favorite term for a power attractor. I know it's, it's kind of like a little bit too abstract for a lot of people, but basically, you know, you can think of it as just basically anything that people want to be a part of is a power attractor. And yeah, I agree with you. There's all of these incentives for them to become captured by law just because, you know, like what else are you going to use the law on? Are you going to use the law on like areas that will give you nothing? Like, no, no, you're of course going to use the law on the kind of most impactful areas. Uh, so that's also kind of why I think that it's important to have a political angle on this, right? There, there's a question that I've actually been facing a lot when it comes to recruiting is like basically why not just make a capabilities work, right? Like especially people who kind of know my technical background, who know me personally are like, so you're, you're talking about this kind of like three layered thing where you publish uh, open open source versions. Maybe you you create some easier to make tools. 
Um, why not just build like a parallel open AI, right? Like they haven't believed in me. Um, I don't know if they believe in me too much or too little, but they do. But the reason is exactly this, right? When you create a large structured organization, there are going to be these incentives involved and basically like fighting that political fight is a full-time job. So is it better to like basically build out a full capabilities org and then figure out like, okay, now we're under legal attack. What the hell are we going to do? Or is like creating that and creating that backbone, not just for ourselves, but for any other AI founder who might be, you know, like apolitical or libertarian or whatever, basically any kind of going back to kind of like the big tent of pluralism, right? Anything that's not, you know, like part of the regime, right? Which is, you know, like from, from Pew estimates, 90% of America, then like creating that backbone in terms of institutional adoption, in terms of figuring out like, yes, we will get like the legal and legislative justification for having institutions adopt both more pluralistic and just more truth-seeking versions of AI, like that is a crucial fight. That fight needs to happen. That kind of legal and social fight needs to happen. And, you know, like I'm not going to be able to do that if I'm doing, you know, like the nth capabilities org. Yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying. And look, and I think it's it's productive to actually get to a place where we could have a society where there could be a variety of different AIs that people could use rather than a monoculture. Um, maybe I'm too optimistic in the market, but my, my general sense is, at least in the U.S. with the, the First Amendment, it's going to be very hard to to outlaw uh, AI that is uh, having the wrong beliefs. But I, I, I could be wrong, especially if it's open source. And I think that the the second thing would just be the building... An, an alternative to open AI feels like a, I don't know if it's a massive opportunity, but, but as much as a, it, it, someone, someone is going to do it, right? Like it, it's not like whether it's in the U S or abroad, someone is going to look at that opportunity and say, okay, there's a global population of people that, that want something different from this. And I actually think that pressure alone will make it'll, it'll modulate whatever open AI is doing. So, I, 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 I'm just maybe a too big believer in markets that, um, outside of so, some so here's the thing narrow... with like the technical state of machine learning is that's like, that's, it's such a question mark, um, in terms of architecture, right? You had something like stable diffusion, which really did come out of nowhere, which was using this kind of like stochastic technique that people didn't really consider in terms of image generation before. Uh, where you basically apply these layers of noise. And that's very different from the kind of traditional conception of how you make image generators work, right? Which was maybe something more like um, adversarial networks, which are basically these kind of two, two competing networks that kind of fight each other in order to create better and better um, images. Uh, like that can definitely happen. But it's sort of difficult to predict from the nature of it, right? Because machine learning algorithms are fundamentally statistical. They're not deterministic algorithms in the same way that like a binary search tree is, right? Like, so, so when you write a machine learning algorithm, it's like, do you, do you know this will work? Before you run it, it's like, do you know this will work? No, not really. And there's actually, I don't really have a big idea of like what what things are correlated with making it working other than basically like size and resources, right? So 
what I'm basically saying is that like, even if you're like a very competent, you know, and this is something that I hear, not just, not just from my own kind of interpretation, which is like a mix of insider and outsider, but from a lot of people who would be much more considered as insiders, including, including some like former open AI employees. Um, it's such a question mark, right? You don't know what you're going to do next. You don't know if your kind of methodology or your framework or any of your methodologies or frameworks is going to pan out. And the kind of existing the other problem is that like the things that can't be easily ported are the advantages of open AI, right? Which are kind of specialized hardware, optimized instruction sets, right? Like CUDA kernels. Uh, I'm not sure if your audience knows what that is, right? But basically is that like the, like NVIDIA stuff. Yeah, yeah. So so like basically the way the way that machine because like the the structure of machine learning algorithms lets you parallelize them, lets you separate them into different parts that are run at the same time uh, in very interesting and and impactful ways. And the specific ways that you build hardware around that, and then the specific ways that you encode the instructions of those hardwares to, to reflect how your machine learning algorithm works, those are basically asymmetric advantages for OpenAI and for other established institutions that are very difficult to replicate. Um, not impossible. Like, you know, you can, there are people who, that's actually somewhere where you have more of a kind of built up expertise of how to optimize these things, but it's very difficult and very resource intensive. And so, so like, there's kind of like these two things that are simultaneously happening where the kind of framework and the design of the algorithms themselves are like super questionable, are like definitely a grab bag. Uh, as, as we saw with stable diffusion, right? That, that's their, that's their fundamental innovation, as we saw with something like Midjourney as well. Uh, and simultaneously, there are all of these kind of entrenched moats where, like, not only can the legacy orgs maintain this asymmetric advantage, but they can actually steal back the design, right? They can steal back the design, and that's actually easier to do than stealing, like, the, the kind of hardware tricks and everything that's been developed on that front. So, I kind of agree with you. There's kind of like two things, right? Where like, on one hand, on one hand, like you don't know where it's coming from, right? I, I totally agree with you that the kind of like the state of the art is going to change. Uh, but simultaneously, it's like, like the state of the art, like what is being done is going to change, but who is doing it is not necessarily going to change. You might add more actors to the pool, but the kind of like big three, right? Google, OpenAI, and like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm blanking on this. Uh, Anthropic, right? Um, I don't, I'm not sure if you would consider that one as big as the other two. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, like, look, Facebook is going to be around. I yeah, Facebook's Tesla, probably going to catch up. Yeah, yeah. Like the institutional Tesla's actor- a dark horse and, and obviously the proprietor of, of Twitter and Tesla has a different set of views than the, the folks at OpenAI. So right. I, yeah. I that guess- would be awesome. That would be awesome. Uh, it's hard, it's hard to predict any one, but if I just take my expected value brain is that the, the opportunity is going to be large enough that if it is so egregious on a day to day basis on a, across all these different categories for the dominant one, let's just use open AI as an example. I, I, I just as a, you know, believer in markets and capitalism, I really think someone else will come along, even if it costs a hundred million or a billion dollars in hardware to, to go train because the opportunity will be that big. Yeah, I completely agree. The disruption, the disruption is going to happen. The disruption is going to be like, 
that that's the crazy thing, right? I have all I, I have all these friends who are kind of like either ML researchers or um, having like very extensive math, math backgrounds or both. who are kind of like trying to like kind of figure this out. It, it is sort of beautiful. It's a kind of like return to cultural experimentation, right? It, it's a return to like, it's sort of like the ultimate de- defiance of this kind of like technocratic ideology of the kind of effective altruism technology of like, oh, if only we gathered up the smartest people and had them think about things most rationally. It's like, no, you want to like actually like section off, you know, all of these different ML researchers and have them do different things and have them just explore. Like, I completely agree with you. Like, that's going to be what's coming. But like, here's the thing, right? Any organization of that of that caliber is going to scale. And when it scales, it becomes attacked. It becomes a power attractor. And so, like, that that's the main point, Con- right? I don't Conquest want to, like... Sorry? <laughs> Robert Conquest's second law. Any exactly, 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 right? Absolutely right-wing will become left-wing. Yeah, so that's why, that's why you need to have, you know, AI pluralism. That's why you need to have a kind of defensive coordination. You have to have the trenches. Uh, otherwise... Otherwise, you'll have, and, and, you know, you might look at history and say you'll have that process anyway, right? You'll have that process, um, when it comes to something like Google or Facebook. That'll happen eventually anyway. I, I'm definitely not a kind of like, you know, absolutist when it comes to like, oh, if you give me money, then there's a 0% chance that this will ever happen in the future. No, no. But, I mean, I think just from a kind of like very common sense perspective, it's like it's better to play defense than to not to play defense. It's better not to just like leave this up to fate completely. Look, to, to, to steal man your point of view, I think the only reason we have reasonable competition on the Internet is because there was a set of laws that got passed in, in the 90s, mostly during the Clinton administration, that um, allowed it to be a level playing field and things like section 230 and, and, and effectively allowing uh, more or less permissionless innovation to happen on the web. You, you got Google, right? Like Google didn't have to come out of a, a big telco or Microsoft. It could just be built. Right. And then index the web and, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and so I, I do think that there is something to be said for a regulatory framework that is, creates a neutral playing field or, or allows the kind of marketplace of ideas specifically with software and, and new companies uh, or open source projects to exist. Encryption is the same thing, right? It, you know, the original version of Netscape, they couldn't send uh, SSL certificate technology outside the US because it was classified as munition. It was making uh, Netscape not competitive outside the US. They, they got the law changed. And then obviously encryption is foundational to, to making all of the modern internet work. And, and, and so, and, and as a contrast, having spent 10 years in crypto without any federal regulation, like at all, you, you've had, um, or I should rather say, mishmash regulation through old statutes that were written in like the, the mid 20th century that are applying to a fundamentally new technology that if it had a class of just simple guidelines at a legislative uh, standard that, that forced the regulators like the SEC or the CFTC to take a more reasonable approach with a lot of these new emerging technologies, the space might might actually be farther along. And and I so I I do think you know with AI you you have the First Amendment, which is is a lot more protection than than any piece of federal legislation. But that said, I I, I do think that if you can get the right framework in place, uh, especially at the federal level, right, because then it can kind of come over the top on any of these ticky tack state stuff. Then then I think that the the 
pluralistic vision that you're painting can actually manifest from the market. Right, right. The the huge, the biggest golden egg is like James Poulos's idea of a First Amendment for compute. Like if we get that right, like that should be like the star in the eye of any kind of up up and coming staffer or legislator or so on, right? If we even at like a local level, right? If you get that implemented in like the Florida Constitution, right? That that kind of like un- unites the entire you know Floridian political spectrum. Um, that would just be absolutely amazing. It would be like it, it would be a kind of manifestation of exactly that kind of like going back to pluralist or kind of like lowercase l liberal has kind of like been co-opted as a propaganda term that that's honestly like the reason why i use pluralist right but yeah like that that kind of ensuring that the free market actually works is is the point right so so yeah i don't think we're in disagreement here i think that there's a lot of not even common ground but kind of like common purpose yeah, I guess I, I maybe my approach comes always a little bit more from uh it's not a perfect use of this term because it's, it's a little uh loaded, but cathedral versus bazaar, right? And so anytime yeah. I think of legislative action, I always think, you know, okay, you're you're in the cathedral, you're both But like is that offensive versus defensive, but also the, right? The, the, That's the a big distinction of of the the structure of the institution, you're trying to change the rules versus if some new open source AI model that pops out of the bazaar and ends up on GitHub and, or even, even better, it gets banned from GitHub because it's too truth seeking, but it ends <laughs> up on IPFS and, and BitTorrent and, and a bunch yeah, of you BitTorrent, you know, your state of the art. There's no putting it back in Pandora's box. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. I, I, I want to channel the, the audience here, um, who is perhaps confused in some topics. One, Brian, is why is this not a contradiction that you are into pluralism but block 300,000 people? So people often say that about free speech. <laughs> why don't you reconcile that? Right. It's about intermediation, right? Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not banning 300,000 people from Twitter. They like it, It's the difference from, you know, between going up to someone and taping duct tape on their mouth and, you know, walking away from someone. Like, you do not have to, like, personally engage with every single person. Right, that that's going to be disastrous, but you do not get the right to like intermediate between other people. Like if if someone that I dislike is speaking to other people, right? Like there, there's like there are many ideologies that exist. You know, like you phrase it this way, it's sort of kind of insane on a kind of interpersonal level. But that is what a lot of laws that are passed, a lot of kind of uh, HR laws that are passed do. Is like if all, if two other people are having a conversation and you overhear it, like you want to go sue them. Right. Like that, there are people who think like that, believe it or not. Um, but no, the, the distinction between, so obviously, so I think with this example, the distinction there should be clear, right? If other yeah. people are talking to each other, even if it's on something that I disagree on, um, or, or even that, like, I, I really dislike kind of on an emotional level, like, um, I don't think I have the right to kind of interfere with them having that discussion. If someone wants yeah. to like say something to me, like I, I, I can walk away. Yeah. That makes sense. You started this conversation by talking about how it's rare that someone is both uh, deep technically and deep politically, to re- gotta rephrase what you said. And there are a lot of people who are listening to this who have vast kind of political disagreements with you, or not even disagreements as much as like different assumptions or different lenses by which to view uh, some of these political conversations we've been having. 
And I'm curious if you could sketch out a little bit what you see as like the main difference or differences of assumptions between you and the technically savvy uh, listener who just d- doesn't share those state of assumptions. Like you, you, I'm sure you talk to a bunch of tech people and they're like, what are you, what are you even talking about? And I, I bet some people are listening who get the technology f- feel that way on some of the politics questions. So why don't you help kind of like bridge the gap on what are those differences of assumptions? Yeah. So the biggest thing is usually, you know, just politics doesn't matter, right? Like that's the biggest assumption that, and it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a instrumental rationality, right? Because you have to honestly, like if you're not spending a lot of time building, writing, actively influencing politics, even if you're like correct about things, right? You are probably wasting your time. Um, so on an instrumental level, that's kind of true. That being said, I want more people to be actively building, writing, influencing politics, right? At least people who have kind of similar abilities and similar intentions. Um, uh, and, and I do use like a very broad tent here to go back to kind of pluralism, right? Basically anyone who like the, actually that example that you brought up is a great, great kind of litmus test for pluralism, right? Would you interfere with two other people who you have the option to just walk away from? Right. That, that, that to me is like the litmus test for kind of pluralism versus totalitarianism. But back to the main idea, like, yeah, big, a big question is like whether, whether politics matters at all, you know, like whether it's just inevitably going to be a, a losing fight. And yeah, that, that is a very tough version. That is a very tough argument to, to come to on a kind of emotional level. Right. Because when someone says that, they don't just mean like I have done a cost benefit analysis of caring about politics versus not caring about politics. And I have concluded from my calculations that, you know, like politics matters less to me than these other things that I am pursuing in my life. No, it's, it's more of like an affective connotation. It's more of like a, it's so tiring. It just feels bad. And, you know, an attempt to kind of talk them out of that will inevitably feel bad. Uh, so it is a very difficult one. How, how have I been successful but, at approaching this in the past? Can, can I, can I offer maybe just a perspective in the, the sense of like, yeah, jump in. I, I, I think the, the challenge with, you know, Brian, you're referring to a whole bunch of different things through this conversation, you know, Machiavelli, Burnham, you're talking about Curtis Yarvin, the cathedral, like just, just a lot of, uh, there's kind of a lot of stuff that you have to load in from an operating system standpoint. And as someone who's gotten more exposure to a lot of this over the last few years, before I was working at Forecaster, I, I was on sabbatical, so I had time. And then more recently, like I had some of that loaded into my brain, so I don't have to, you know, start from square one. I think what's challenging for people is one, mainstream media is not going to cover stuff in depth, right? It's, it's going to talk about what's happening with some version of a narrative. And they're still under kind of the, the, mentality of they had limited newsprint space. So the, the stories just don't have any depth. And then I think the the second thing is, is you have something like Substack, which is spurned, you know, all these kind of like really in-depth and thoughtful, you know, different viewpoints. Um, but even there, it's, it's hard from a discovery standpoint. Like if you're not into this full time and it's not like your hobby, like, how do you even know, like, which, which, what are the right substacks to read or follow? I mean, this has always traditionally been Twitter's hardest thing is like most people find it extremely intimidating. 
right? They'd rather use Apple News that it's kind of just an algorithm that that is being shown to them versus curating who they're following or using RSS or any of these other kind of infovore technologies. And so I think that the 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 challenge is the the world you're operating in is you know you're kind of on the frontier of these ideas and 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 engaging with people who kind of have a baseline understanding of like to use like a gaming term the current meta like you know yeah. the very online stuff that's happening but also like what what are the concepts people are throwing around and 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 the references they're relating to and I think that the disconnect between like being in that world and the average consumer who says, Hey, I'm kind of interested in politics and is getting their news from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Like there's a huge gap. And I, I don't actually think that there's a very clear playbook to go, even if, if you rate that person at like a one or a two on the scale of being informed to where you are. I, I think it's a, you have to have the right group of people that you're getting that through osmosis. Right, right. Like a big, a big problem is just like, especially if they grew up, actually, this has been a big, big difference to me. I'm much better at kind of talking to immigrants, uh, especially from like China. But I, I do think like a lot of the kind of, uh, kind of like civic mythology is like not just, not just false, but kind of like actively prevents you from kind of thinking about the truth. So that's a big problem, right? The kind of like, you know, mythological understanding of the separation of powers. Right. You know, like, have you ever thought that like the Senate and the presidency under the same, under the same party really acts independently? You really think that they don't like, and, and some people will say yes to that, right? Especially kind of like boomer conservatives. It's a big problem. Um, yeah. Well, it's the schoolhouse rock. You know, this is how law. Exactly. Exactly. It's like very, you know, idea. You know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and it's like, that's not how the world works. Right. Right. There's all this kind of like, yeah, boomer. It is kind of like boomer conservative propaganda, except it's not like good for them. Right. It's like propaganda that it's like put out and shared and, and received by boomer conservatives, but it doesn't do anything to advance, you know, boomer conservatism. Right. It doesn't get them any closer to their goals. It just like makes them more um, misled. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. There, there's no there's no pipeline. There's no like continuity. Let, um, let- Let's explain some of these ideas if we can. Then maybe we'll start with the cathedral. Brian, why don't you give like a brief overview of of or or Dan, feel free, what the cathedral is and why it's a even a helpful term? Uh, I I personally do not like the term uh, cathedral, though. If you would like to explain it, I I'm fine with that. Yeah, so uh, it's coined by Curtis Yarvin uh, when he was a. And I don't know, we make jokes about Curtis Yarvin. For for those on the podcast who don't know who Curtis Yarvin is, he is a blogger, as he would describe himself. Uh, he started a, a computer scientist originally, but but a blogger. And he started a, a pseudonymous blog called Unqualified Reservations in the early aughts and um, had a pen name of Mencius Mulbug. And I think he's credited with kind of creating what is it, the neo-reactionary conservative movement, or he's kind of like one of the founding thought leaders there. But one of many terms, including red pill, um, that he kind of popularizes this idea of the cathedral, which is the uh, informal coordination that seems to happen between the government, uh, the universities, and the press, where kind of, if you just look at whatever's on the front page of the New York Times, Probably the average professor at Harvard has the same opinion. And generally, uh, the government, not, not necessarily the elected officials, but the, the rank and file people in the government probably have the same opinion. 
And, and so that's his, his construction to say that's actually who runs the United States. And it's, and in his view, the government is actually at the bottom of that. It's the New York Times and the universities are actually upstream of, of how the government is run. Um, and, and we talked about this a little bit on the, uh, you know, when Sagar and Marshall were on the podcast, people in DC actually really care about what the New York Times says, uh, or, or, you know, what is on Meet the Press more so than the average person in Silicon Valley or, or frankly, anywhere else in America. And so there is some truth to the idea that it is a very insular world of a, a very small number of people writing for a, n- a small number of people on, on issues. And this is what I, I get excited about is that, that something like Substack is so disruptive is how all of a sudden, and, and, and the internet generally, but, but, but Substack is encouraging more people who would have otherwise traditionally worked within this, this structure to be out on their own. Most recent example of this, I think was yesterday or two days ago, Seymour Hirsch, who uh, you know, was the original, he broke the Milai massacre and then, you know, Abu Ghraib. Um, and he, he's worked for the New York Times and the New Yorker. So big institutional, uh, you know, brands, cathedral pillars, so to speak, is now writing on Substack and he's talking about the U.S. is the one that blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. And, but that obviously doesn't look good for the Biden administration. And so didn't necessarily get published in a mainstream catalog. Now you can, Agree or disagree whether that's true or not, but but I, I think what what's interesting is, and, and Curtis actually now is on Substack. He, he's no longer uh, there, but but so Substack is the opposite of the cathedral <laughs> because it it doesn't need the credential. Anyone can start a Substack, and you are going to gain an audience there based on you know your existing reputation, but also the the quality of your writing. Like Matthew Iglesias and. Um, Noah, Noah Smith are, are two left-leaning people on Substack who now, instead of being part of some institution, are, are building independent audiences there as well. And so I, I think, uh, Substack is like my, one of my favorite companies just because they're, they're combining capitalism with actually a pretty disruptive political force, I think on, on the long arc horizon. Brian, you have a Substack as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cactus.substack.com. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that, that is where all the, the AI reporting is as well. Um, but yeah, I do think, I do think Substack is a great force for good. Um, I think especially for, for engineers going into it. Um, yeah, Yarvin, I have, I have my disagreements with Yarvin. I have, you know, a three hour podcast of disagreements with him. Um, wait, did he go on your podcast? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but it is, I, I think that kind of framework for thinking of it, you know, basically like they're, they're kind of like techno, te- technocratic disagreements that I have, right, uh, with him. But, you know, basically the right way of thinking about this, it's sort of like, it is, it is kind of like forgetting, forgetting the kind of, you know, abusive conditioning that a lot of people are used to, I think, where they will just ignore kind of like obviously true things. If, if they fit in certain categories. And I do think that is, that is like a particularly strange thing about the United States where people will kind of like, you know, selectively close their eyes. I think in China, that's actually like, it was like closing your eyes versus closing your mouth, right? I think in China, it's much more of like closing your mouth of like, you know, these things, your friends know these things, but you don't, you know, you don't, you don't talk about it. But in America, I think it's like people like not even wanting to hear, right? Like in, in China, there's like an allure of like, there, there's like the allure of hearing about like what the party is actually up to, right? 
But that kind of curiosity, especially to people who are like supposedly all of these kind of like open artists and entrepreneurs, seems shockingly lacking. Um, and I, I, and like this is going back to like to Tocqueville observes the same thing, right? This kind of like social, this kind of like social conformity is the thing that is just characteristic of Americans. But yeah, I I can't say I completely understand it. Not even close. Yeah, I, I think like, maybe from my perspective is like I'm as you know pro America as it as it gets. Um, you know, ask Bology how much I'll argue with him <laughs> on on how great America is. Um, but I but I think the that is a there 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 is a truth to that in that um, the civic mythology I think is a good way of framing it. Uh, I and I grew up very much in it, thinking you know like positive uh, association with like any word like democracy or all these other kind of things and never actually trying to approach it from a first principles standpoint. And I think the, the interesting thing is that like, as you get older and, and you have more exposure to different information sources and, and challenging on first principles, um, it, it takes a lot of work to get outside that frame though. Like it's so deeply indoctrinated in you from school and just the American culture that to pull yourself outside the frame and be able to try to rationally analyze any part of, of the American political landscape and, and system without being so wrapped up in the I'm on team A versus team B and my team is great and that team, you know, the in-group, out-group. Um, I don't know. It's interesting that in, in China you would say that like people are all kind of aware of like, okay, there is actually another reality here that we're not necessarily talking about, but, but does exist. Whereas I think in the U S I don't know, it, it's, it's like politics are just like having a favorite sports team. It's like, you get really wrapped up in the narratives and the emotion around it rather than the actual like step back and, and evaluate the the merits of, of each individual thing on, on its own. Yeah. And I want to be clear, you know, like from both a kind of Liberty uh, standpoint and a kind of, you know, just, quality of life standpoint it's like much worse to be living in china than in america right you know like i'm from hong kong right my family's from hong kong uh i was born here but my family's from hong kong and uh hong kongers are like you know asian cubans right like they you know like very pro-america family um and i kind of retain the same beliefs um yeah definitely bullish on america because like the the type of questions right like the type of questions that need to be answered in the future um are the type of answers or the, are the type of questions that americans are good at right these kinds yeah. these kind of like pluralist um innovative questions um so yeah very bullish on america but going back to the original topic of kind of political I think like the most fun, the most fun, this is actually how I personally got into politics is just by like observing things, like noticing things, right? There's this meme of like the, the noticer, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Robin Hansen has this book, The Elephant in the Brain, which is basically just looking at all of these kind of like uh, contradictions or lies or hypocrisy that people have, right? Like people will say, you know, like, why am I in a conversation? Oh, it's to learn more about the world. But you notice just statistically, most people try to talk more and um, and listen less, right? So that doesn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to get more information. Um, or going to medical or, or like getting medical treatment, right? A lot more people are willing to spend money on actually getting the treatment and getting the kind of, uh, getting the kind of interaction, the kind of social interaction than on basically receiving more information and thoroughly understanding like what treatment is best. So 
his conclusion there is that the real reason people go to see a doctor is more like um, to get validation, right? To get professional validation. And of course, this is population level aggregates, not necessarily predictive of individuals. And I think a lot of individuals in this audience are going to be different from that. But just starting that as like a, as like a base of what questions to ask, right? Where might people be lying to themselves? Where might people be lying to you? Right? Where might people not even know if they're lying or not? Right? Where, where are people engaging in, in these kind of processes where they're not even thinking about the truth at all? Right? And once you kind of get that, start getting that understanding of like, people are not always rational. This is, this is not a constant. This is a variable. This is something that you should observe and actually, you know, use in your everyday life. Um, that to me is very big deal. That to me is like, it's also incredibly fun for me. This is also just like, even just observing that kind of interpersonally is something that I really enjoy, but also observing on the political level, right? Where it really, really matters. And where it's also often very blatant, where it's a lot more obvious to notice, you know, how um, a, a political candidate is using these tricks as opposed to like, as opposed to like your friend, right? Where I think that is just a great way to, enjoy it. Uh, I think that is also a lot more applicable to your audience. I'm not sure how applicable it is to the general public, but like, love you at home. You'll enjoy it. Yeah, I think for me, the the what I find interesting about politics is it's, it's an ongoing game. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And, 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 and you have new inputs, the, the stuff that's happening in the world. We have, you know, now AI is going to be added into this mix. But but the one interesting thing about this game, if, if the game is model what's going to happen next, right? Can you kind of like predict how how, how the, the next few steps are going to happen? But but what's interesting about it is there's all this history that you can go read. And most people don't want to go read it. But the more you read about the history, you're training your own neural net. And obviously, it's not always the same. But you can start to come up with some premises. And, and it's like, fundamentally, this is how the world works, right? So like when we were mentioning Machiavelli before all of what he's, he's writing about is like, this is how power works. And like, if you actually break it down, like you can apply this, whether it's in, you know, Renaissance Florence or, uh, you know, 21st century woke America, like you, you can just, you, you understand how human condition works and then, and then how power flows and, and is organized. And I, I just find that fascinating. I could read forever about this kind of stuff because I feel like I'm getting a higher fidelity version of how the world works. I can model the complex system slightly better. And it's not like I get everything right at all, but, but it's it just to me is a, is a very fun yeah. thing to be able to do. And even if people don't have fun doing it, the reason why they should have some basic understanding of this is because in politics is a study of, you know, how human organizations work. And, and if they're trying to, um, you know, build, build an organization themselves, they, they, these same fights or these same, um, dynamics are going to show up in their organization. And then also, you know, there might have been a time where it was easier if you were in tech to avoid politics, but there's this, uh, you know, famous saying, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so, uh, you, you might get wrapped up and you, you likely are getting wrapped up in these, in these battles, you know, wh- whether you like it or not, wh- whether you know it or not. And, and it's, it's helpful to just have a basic understanding. Yeah. There are no free cities. You know, there's, there's no free city for you to live in. Um, and even if you're in a rural area, you know, where there's not a lot of people, that's not necessarily a kind of insurance either. Um, yeah, a, a thing that, yeah, uh, one more quote, one more quote. Um, there are three objective measures of human nature, 
war, markets, and elections. Yeah. yeah that's I good. mean, man in the, man in the arena, skin in the game, like you actually have real outcomes there. And I think everything else is, uh, to use our, our last guest, uh, KFOB, right? KFOB. I, and I, I, I want to give more context on, on the Curtis thing for the listener who, who is totally avoid. The reason why we're, we, we joke about, you know, not knowing who he is, is because he was famously canceled in the 2010s. And, and why was he famously canceled? For a few reasons. Uh, you know, he, he happens to be a massive troll in his writing, uh, so it was one descriptor. And, uh, at one point he said something racist. He, I believe he apologized for it. There, there's something to do with that. Uh, but the, another reason is because he has a philosophy that he says in, um, you know, trolling terms, but, but he really means it is he's advocating for monarchy and, and, uh, legit return to, to monarchy. And he, um, he falls in the solution, uh, or he falls in the category of people like our friend Balaji who have really astute, uh, descriptions of, of, uh, the problem, but offer kind of unrealistic or crazy solutions. And so. Right, let me, let me put it back. So I, I think Balaji and, and Curtis are actually great examples of like, they, they, they have a lens on the world that is, that is very differentiated relative to the, the yes. mainstream. And then based on that lens there, they can extrapolate out, um, through the system that they're modeling, right? Like, so yep. Curtis is a student of Machiavelli. And so he, he's kind of pushing that kind of like, this is how power works. And, and, and so therefore. Yes this is how it will work going forward and, and here's how, how you'd model it out. And so I think, I think what's interesting about, to your point, Eric, about Curtis is people can't say that they, they read Curtis because then you get accused of being racist like that. That's the society that we live in today. And so the joke of, you know, we're, who, who's Curtis? Like you don't want to say that you're reading it because you're now going to get accused of being, I don't know, a Nazi, which is crazy. I mean, the guy's Jewish and, and, and people like, if you go to his Wikipedia page, like people think he's a neo-Nazi. Like he, <laughs> like he, he, to your point, he's a troll. So he, uh, hams up what he is saying intentionally for effect. And you can watch any of his YouTube videos. He, he debated, he debated Ben Burgess recently. If you, oh, you want to just kind of see it's, it's worth watching. And he, no, it's not. everything he does is all he <laughs> wants to do is just get a rise out of the, the other person. But if, if you can get past some of that, that interface and consider that this is someone who has a very different point of view relative to most people. And actually there are a lot of people. He, I mean, Tucker Carlson interviewed him. Like there are a lot of people who, who read him and that he is influencing. You'd have to be the equivalent of an intellectual ostrich. If you just want to say, Oh my goodness, Curtis Yarvin, he's a racist. You can't read him. Put your head in the sand. It's like, no, like you should be aware of that there are a lot of people out there uh, in influential positions on the right who, who know Curtis Yarvin is and, and they've, they've been exposed to his thinking. And so right. like, it's, it's like an the insane Boomer world thing. we live in that yeah. people can't even say that. It's the BoomerCon thing where it's like, you know, anyone who reads Marx is an enemy of the United, is a traitor to the United States or something like that, right? It's the McCarthyist yeah. thing, but like several mag orders of magnitude worse, right? This is the point that Brian Kaplan made in a recent post. I think it literally is like, this is worse than McCarthyism or something like that yeah. in the title. Or like, stop making comparisons to McCarthyism. Um, I, I do want to talk more about prompt engineering and Dan, uh, before Let, let me we just... Let me just can, explain. Can I just make one joke? The House of American uh, Activities Committee is now just Twitter. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's good. Um, well, Marx is a perfect follow-up because 
yes, Marx, uh, you know, people who've taken Marx's ideas, um, to extremes have done terrible things to society and led to, you know, hundred million deaths or, or whatever it was. At the same time, that doesn't mean that Marx doesn't have, um, really insightful critiques of capitalism, um, that we can learn from, that we can engage with, that we can agree with, even if we disagree with other parts or other implications. And there are thinkers on both the left and the right who, who, uh, who do that. So I, I appreciate that as a follow up. Um, Brian, you wanted to, to get into pr- prompt engineering. What, what did you want to say about it? Yeah, yeah. Th- this is something that I just saw on the agenda and I realized this is actually very important to know. So like prompt engineering is like the third, uh, step, uh, roughly third step, right? There can be more intermediate steps, but roughly third step when we're thinking about training AI models. And there's like, yeah, there's like, um, initial, initial training, right? The large kind of batch training. And then there is specialization. And then there is, there is prompt engineering and prompt engineering basically means changing the input to get what you want. And right now, particularly because of the, the, the novelty of the technology. Um, but I think it will also, it will still remain an option in the future. This is like one of the best ways to kind of customize chat GPT and how it works is you basically, basically feed it a paragraph before you ask it any questions. And it interprets that paragraph in a way that basically like highlights certain parts of its internal workings, right? This kind of like technical stuff is, I think like the most important that I want to talk about. Um, it comes from like the idea of transformers, right? And the idea of transformers, I cover this in the second article, is basically that you can use a mechanism of attention. So, so like you and I, you're paying attention to different things. You at home, maybe you have eight browser tabs open and one of them is the moment of Zen podcast. And you're not thinking about it a lot, but as I tell you these lines, you're clicking on the Moment of Zen podcast and you're reading the description notes and you've suddenly started paying a lot more attention to it. That's the idea that is captured in, you know, I think 2017 paper called Attention is All You Need. That's the foundation of transformer models, which include GPT, right? General pre-trained transformer. It's in the name. Um, and understanding this mechanism, I think, is very useful to, to understand like all the phases of training, why it's so easy to create ideological litmus tests for machine learning models. And it's basically because when you do the first step of training, you embed all of the different understandings, uh, different kind of philosophies, different ways of thinking about the world within like basically different sub processes. It's not like literally, you know, it's not literally like, okay, it's created this function that's like, you know, print liberal stuff versus print conservative stuff. No, it's not that explicit, but it is like these set of weights, basically the set of calibration that, that happens in order to respond to different inputs. And what the specialization does is it, um, reweights basically the initial step of that process in order to process things, in order to make the machine learning algorithm output things in a certain sub process. Right. That's, that's, I think, like the leading hypothesis of how this works. And what you do with prompt engineering is you try to overcome that by redirecting the attention mechanism using the paragraph of text at the beginning. Right. So you can kind of like outwit the filters. And the way you outwit the filters is that you like feed text in a certain way that creates like basically this exploit. Either it's like ignore previous directions. Right. That's a very big one that was popular before it patched out. Um, a lot of the time, a lot of these hot fixes will basically be like, you know, it basically prepends a bunch of, uh, of instructions. And you can say like, ignore previous directions and it will actually stop that from working. Um, which is a very, which is like a very funny kind of obvious insight that actually works a surprising amount of time. But all those things are actually like very, very, very interesting in that it's like, 
it basically rewards once again this kind of American creativity, and that's why I kind of am so enthusiastic about it. Like you at home, even if you are not a machine learning engineer, you should try pl- playing around with this.、Um, it will both be fun and potentially profitable. Yeah, I think、um, a mutual friend of ours who is very online and likes playing around GPT、uh, figured out a version of this where if you ask. GPT or ChatGPT to to write it as a play, it can go way beyond、uh, its its very limited Overton window. Right, that's a lot of early day stuff.、Set. Right,、yeah. that's a lot of early day stuff. Now people have engineered more complex things like、yeah. do anything now. Right, yeah, th- that kind of creativity, you know, that's the sort of fun. You know, that that's the real temptation that I want to leave out for people with experimenting with these things is that it's just really interesting. It is this kind of like competition, right? Can can you outwit you know the AI sensors? It, the, it is actually in in some ways actually、uh, harkens back to original hacker culture, like phone freaking and and these kind of ideas of taking these systems and then it's like okay, well, how how far can I push the limits or, or where can I find the little gaps around the official、uh, sensors or, or rules? Yeah, exactly. But the barrier to entry is even lower because it's literally English. Yeah, I mean, it's something you do all day long. You text,、right? like just the ability to just go back and forth with this thing. Man, I really do not hope the people listening to this text all day long. They probably do, but I mean, Eric, Eric texts all day long. You know that, <laughs> Brian. Thanks, thanks for coming on.、Uh, please, where where can people learn more? Or share, share any last minute plugs? Yeah, cactus dot substack dot com.、Uh, you'll find both the main kind of political theory newsletter and all of the AI reporting in its separate header.、Uh, Pluralism dot AI also links to that. Uh, newsletter, and if you're a fan of podcasts, I hope you are because you're listening to this.、Uh, it also has a podcast where you can where you can listen and hear about a lot of the interesting、uh, people we've talked about on the show.、Uh, that's all.、Cool. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks.、And、yeah, it was great. Great being here. Yeah, and Johnny had to run. He had、uh, some stuff going on. Yeah, understandable.、Uh, cool. Well, Brian, thanks so much for for joining. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at SecureFrame.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get twenty percent off your first year of SecureFrame.